The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, your host Bud Hughes interviews co-host Tim DePasquale and vice versa. We'll discuss the backstory of Bud's Garage, the radio show, and Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast. After that, we'll welcome in our special guest, veteran motorsports broadcaster, Bob Varsha. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast. I'm Bud Hughes, your resident car nut, and Tim DePasquale, upholsterer to the stars. Tim, how you doing, man? I'm fine, Bud. How are you today? I'm doing great. You think we should let the folks know what we are and why we're doing it? Yeah, we should. Okay. We are an extension of a show that is broadcast out of Gainesville, Georgia. That would be Georgia, as in Bulldogs. Woof, woof. Woof, woof. That's in Gainesville, Georgia. And it is a weekly hour hourly show. That is from noon to one on Saturdays, okay? And it's all about automotive stuff, uh, racing, automotive things, whatever. And we need more time. Mm. Every time I bring notes in, I've got enough to do, like, three shows. Right. So it was suggested by a friend of ours that we look in the podcast world. So here we are. Yeah, here we are. Right. Tim is an Army veteran. Air Force, excuse me. Air Force, sorry, sorry. Air Force, one of those. We ate off real plates. All right. (laughs) And we refer to him as a pollster that's a stars because, explain, well, Tim. We've, we have done a, a lot of work on movie vehicles and TV show vehicles and things like that. So Some of know. the movies that folks would have seen with right. your work in it. They didn't right. even know it. They didn't even know it. Yeah, right. Black Dog, uh, Ride Along 2, Ride Along, um, what else? Uh, Furious 7, Need for Speed. So you've done the Fast and Furious franchise, too. Some yeah, of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the one that they made in Atlanta. Okay. That's it. It's, it's got to be stuff that's made in Atlanta. They, you know, there's upholsterers in every city, so. They yeah, but we're, gonna, we're doing a lot of that now. Yeah, we're you doing know, a, in Atlanta, a lot so, of it. Um, yeah, so. You know, that's. And, that, and that's I've been around thing. for a long time, so I have the ability to pull together a, a large enough size crew to get on their work as quickly as possible and work through it, because when they call they need it done yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the yeah, okay. And when you hand them an invoice, they act like it's coming out of their own pocket. I understand, <laughs> so, understand that. Well, yeah. and and Tim uh, has some some stories to tell from the upholstery business, and we'll throw those in, you know, any week when we're doing the podcast. So oh, yeah. Always interesting stuff. So Tim, you and I have been to a ton of races. Yes, okay? we have. We've been to Atlanta Motor Speedway. We go to other races. We listen to races. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been to custom shops. Did it, yeah. did it ever roll through your mind, as we're in the garage and the pits and stuff, you know, these are multi-million dollar situations. Oh, yeah, this is... Where do they get you, the guys? Right. Where do they get them, bud? I know where they get some of them. Yeah. Lanier Technical College. In, oh, right. In Gainesville, Georgia, and they have a motorsports vehicle technology program that's been going on for 21 years. It was started by moi and a lot of help from a bunch of friends, mm-hmm. and the program has succeeded gone on and on and on and they have they have students graduates in custom shops they have them on nascar teams drag racing teams road racing teams and they all started out at you know right here in gainesville georgia 
so as part of the, you you were the director that, of yeah, the, when it first started when it first started mm-hmm. and i cannot imagine but what hoops you must have jumped through to get the uh faculty on board the powers that be that handle and control the money and getting together with teams and trying to get people placed in teams so that they could continue on the kids that were really serious about taking this to whatever degree they could? Well, that, that, that's true. It took a, lo- a lot of work to begin with, but the technical college system of Georgia got behind the program when they saw what, what we could accomplish together, and uh, it, is, it has become a, a national program now, mm-hmm. a nationally recognized program. They got a great instructor now, that, uh, or a director now, that uh, used to be an engineer for the panel's uh, company, group of companies, and he knows his stuff. He's got a great bunch of uh, people that work with him, including the administration, and the program is going strong today. And they have got a lot of programs that tie into the motorsports program and that the motorsports program ties into, including welding, uh, machine tool, uh, different different programs that, you know, at some point in time, if you decide to not go into racing, mm-hmm. you still have skills that are transferable. And that's a unique thing about Lanier Technical College. You learn skills that are transferable and skills you can build upon, and you can actually come back and learn the newer skills as you progress through your job. They have uh, five locations throughout Georgia, and, uh, you know, you need to check them out, LanierTechnicalCollege.com. In the motorsports program, they build racing technicians, but in the other programs, great careers start with Lanier Technical College. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about you and me so folks know what the heck we're doing. Okay. Tell us about yourself, Bud. Bud is just a uh, retired automotive teacher now. I used to be an ASE technician at the dealership. Um, eventually, at some point in time, I went to school and got a degree in, uh, in teaching and was approached by— I was, first of all, approached by a high school to teach their— auto mechanics course Mm -hmm. because I dealt with them. I was running a machine shop at the time, an automotive machine shop. And one of the principals used to tinker with cars and came in and said, man, we'd love somebody like you to teach. And uh, we we got to thinking about it and talked to different people and uh, made the right right transition of things. And so I wound up in teaching world, but I've always been hands-on. Right. So uh, that's that's my background. Uh, Done a lot with racing. Went from... uh, teaching an automotive program to teaching a motorsports program at a technical college. And, uh, you know, from there, it just kind of took off. All the contacts I had from drag racing and, and that developed into NASCAR contacts and road racing. And so that's Going back that's to your my background. early childhood, though, when did you first realize that you were an automotive lover? Uh, I, I don't—, I don't well, my dad was was like your dad and, and all our dads back then. My dad made stuff. Mm-hmm. We didn't have it. He made it. Yeah. You know, we made a tractor out of a, a Buick Electra because, right. you, you know, you couldn't afford to buy a tractor. And that's a whole other story. But uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, I was it was back in the 60s. I was building model cars all the time. Oh, yeah. My favorite toy was an Erector set. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just let that go. <laughs> my, my, my favorite song was an my favorite toy was an Erector set, and you know I was building those things all the time. 
And, okay. and then I'd, I'd follow the directions and make their whatever they had, you know, that you're going to mm. make, you use this part and that part. Then I started to make my own stuff, and then I started to motorize it. And, you know, from there I went to go-karts and, uh, um, you know, just racing around the backyard. I had a neighbor who was a security guard at Lancaster Motor Speedway, which is outside of Buffalo. And if I mowed his lawn, he'd take me to the races. Oh, wow. That got me into the racing thing. That okay. was the bug. I would say the go-karts got me into the the driving thing and working on stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had junk. I mean, when I was when I got a car, it, yeah, I, had to, I had to work on it to make it run. Oh, right. All of us did. Yeah, all of us did. And that's so, how it works. You know, you, yeah. you, you acquired the skills to keep your particular thing going. But mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's really when it started for me. And uh, my dad was a great mentor. Uh, he was a raging bull most of the time in the shop, but that's okay. You, you yeah. Know. You learn how to get things done. Get them and done you learn quickly. how to swear. Yeah. You, I mean, you know, all the right words for all the right times. Did you work at a gas station when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I worked at a gas station, and that eventually morphed into working at a gas station and also did repairs because mm. we, were, we were in a little a little dairy community called Nunday, New York, which is uh, upstate New York, and uh, almost into Pennsylvania. And okay. so, you know, we, we worked on it. We fixed cars. We, yeah. you know, we had a parts store. It was all in one conglomerate. That was after the horse and buggies. Yeah. Well, we yeah. worked on buggies too. So, <laughs> you know, but, uh, had, a, had a great clientele and, mm-hmm. you know, you learn to interact with all sorts of people Right. and all this whole business, you know, I know things have changed, but it all goes back to, you know, you got to interact with people cause we're all in this together. Oh, sure. All right. So my turn. When did it start for you, the car craziness? Uh, you know, uh, I was. Uh, we lived next to a four-lane road right at an intersection. And from my bedroom window, I could watch the cars come around the curve and down to the traffic light as they entered the north side of town. And uh, the truck traffic and the car traffic and the guys racing from the traffic light, you know, Friday and Saturday nights. Oh my God. You know, um, a 59 Chevy with a 348 versus a 57 Ford with a supercharged 312 leaving the traffic light and taking oh, off. Oh yeah. yeah. Good, good days. Yeah. The, the tractor trailers that couldn't stop when the light turned red and <laughs> blew their horns and sailed through the intersections. And then the, Right at the end of our property were the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks, and then a block away was the Ohio River. So I became immersed in all things transportation from the time I was little. I watched. I was sitting, watching out my bedroom window one rainy Sunday, and a Buick, a 59 Buick, came around that curve headed towards the traffic light, and the hood suddenly flew up, and then one hinge broke and then it kind of then the other hinge broke and it just flipped over the car i mean you don't get any kind of experiences like that unless you're sitting watching out the window watching the traffic yeah watching watching the the cars go by now was it was your dad a car guy or your family my dad worked in a steel mill and he was uh everybody did yeah yeah he was a uh, hunter and hunterman hunter fisherman kind of guy Mm -hmm. he Cars to him were like basic transportation. Nobody knows where I got this from in my family. Didn't have any crazy uncles or anything? Mm, Yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad's brother, he had a 57 Ford and on and on. You know, the Fords couldn't beat the Chevys. 
he would do something to his Ford, and then the guy with the Chevy would do something to his Chevy. And so he finally traded up to Chevys in a you know, 57, then a 62. And But then when he got the 63 Riviera with the nail heads, uh, what yeah. was that, a 401 or 425? They, or? Made a, they made a 455. They made a 401 to 455, yeah. Four, I think this was this one was a four hundred one. What a sweet automobile that oh, yeah. was! Oh yeah, oh yeah. So days, that's how friend. that's pretty much how it went. So yeah. so where did you go from you know watching the traffic and and hanging with your uncle and stuff like that? What got you into hands on with cars? Well, I got a job at a gas station okay. when I yeah. turned fifteen, and uh, went from there. You know what? What year was that? That was nineteen seventy. 1970, still yeah. the miniskirt era. Mm-hmm. Bet you could clean a windshield. Oh my! For oh half my. a day, and you, you know that was that was it. When even if someone was getting a dollar's worth of gas, you clean the windshield, the check. back window, yep. the headlights, check the oil, check the battery, and if they asked for any other services like checking the tires, you did that as well. Yeah. The guy that run the gas station was uh, he was a stickler for customer service, and that was a huge training lesson for me. So I went from there to when I graduated high school, a friend of mine's dad and uncle had coal trucks, tractor trailer coal trucks, and they taught me how to drive a Mack truck 1965B model with a 18-speed two-stick transmission. I was never so scared in my life. (laughs) But, you know, that was where I first got my driving, real driving experience. Yeah, my dad my dad drove coal truck. His grandfather had three or four of them. And, you know, back in the day, he delivered coal and, you know, out of Youngstown, Ohio. And, you know, he, he same deal. Yeah. That's where he learned to, to drive. That's, and, and once you get that in your blood, it just never goes away. And I don't know how to explain that. So did you go from there to driving trucks or what was the transition? No, because well, you used to be an over-the-road trucker. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was a completely different scenario there. I went from that driving truck. I loved driving truck once I got onto it. But my father got me a job in the steel mill. And uh-huh. being the good Italian son, I felt obligated to take it because he was, you know, he was pretty forceful about it. You need to have that job in the mill where you got benefits and vacation and, and, and back then you work somewhere for 25 30 years exactly you know, or that, more yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so and and so i got hired in there to replace one of 25 people that were killed in an explosion there and you know but then he was very angry when i bought a motorcycle because he was afraid i was going to get hurt right <laughs> isn't that funny well, so, and you use a motorcycle to get back forth to work right Oh yeah. yeah, 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 and for whatever, whatever else, I loved riding motorcycle. Okay, so when did you get into cars? You got a motorcycle. When okay, did you so get then, into then your, I went into car? the Air Force. All right, no. I I had to get away from there. I I I didn't want to be a steel mill guy Understand. for all my life. So mm-hmm. I went in the Air Force, a chance to travel. And when I went in the Air Force, I went into the body shop in the Air Force, in the motor pool. Ah. And we did auto body and metal fabrication and upholstery. So well, it was making seat covers for pickup trucks, basically. Yeah. And we had patterns, all big cardboard patterns. We'd just whip them out on the material and sew them up and install them. And I got very interested, bought a sewing machine, set it up in my spare room at my house, and started doing work for my buddies. Cool. And that was how that went. And, of course, I loved the paint and body, too. I love painting cars. So I did some of that as well. Yeah. You used to paint garbage trucks. Yeah. Right, right. When I, first moved to, uh, when I first moved to the Atlanta area, when I got out of the service, didn't know a soul here, 
and was at a gas station down on North Decatur Road, and a uh, a gentleman. I start, you know, you talk to everybody at the gas station, right? Do you? Yeah. Do you talk to people? Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. "Yeah, I just got to town. Don't know anybody. Looking for a job. What do you do? Paint cars. You know. He's like, hey, they're looking for someone at uh, DeKalb County is looking for a painter for their garbage trucks. (laughs) Next thing you know, I was painting garbage trucks one a day. Hey. Painting is painting. Yeah, right, right. It was good. And then, uh, you know, I made some contacts there and decided to start my own business and came home one day and told my wife, you're going to believe what happened to me today. I uh, quit my job, rented a building, and got a business license. So we're doing upholstery. (laughs) Yes, right. So how long did that last first time around? Well, that first time around, it lasted 10 years until 1990. Then we went through a, a divorce, and that was when I went to clear my head for two years. I drove a tractor trailer over the road. So I had been doing upholstery for 10 years, took a two-year sabbatical to drive tractor trailer over the road, then came back in 92, January 15th, I opened up my shop in Duluth, and here we are. The rest is history. history. Okay, so you did the painting and the metal fab and all that stuff. Do you still do some of that stuff? Oh, yeah, for for myself. For myself. That's, you know, that's... uh, it's just something that I enjoy as a hobby, but, you know, the chemicals and all, all you guys that are in the body shop business oh, and, yeah, and yeah. doing the paint work and working around, the, you know, when, when we were painting, and even on base, we had a respirator, but we weren't using yeah, respirators. Yeah, but it was one of those ones with a little strap on it that you stuck over your nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. And, and And we painted the first runway crash truck from red to that lime green color with uh what was the urethane paint emron yeah so we were the first guys in the air force to use the emron paint and they got us these suits you know that covered it with a hood and a little Yeah, because well, that had epoxy in it yeah that was a two right. stage that was a uh well not a two stage it was uh well i guess it had to be you had to mix something with it right a hardener a hardener and then it would right. set up and then you had these yeah. uh the an extra air hose to deliver an air supply inside the suit. But what they never considered was as soon as you start painting, the sight glass in the hood got covered with overspray and you couldn't see anything. So, of course, me and my buddy that were doing the painting, we pulled the hoods off and we painted it like we always painted with no mask. Now, that's, you know, that it's funny you bring that up because, yeah, when you when we painted, I mean, the, the stuff was everywhere. Don't have to worry about that now with the airless sprayers. Oh, that's, as much as much, right, right, right. And we had a nice paint booth, a nice downdraft waterfall style paint booth. Yeah, the waterfall thing. I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't do painting. I worked in a shop where, well, like I say, the gas station. We did some collision work and stuff. But the uh, the waterfall thing, you had to really have a helper when you were in the booth to stop you from slapping the hoses. And getting water on the on the car. Oh yeah, yeah, right. And when you're doing a truck like that or heavy equipment, we painted a lot of equipment in the Air Force. You're you're not just painting the outside. You've got to paint underneath, inside, outside. So you're crawling all around this vehicle and dragging that hose. And then with with the Emeron, of course, we had the other hose for the uh, air supply for the fresh air supply. So now you're dragging two hoses all around this vehicle, and it's like you say, you got to have someone else there. To kind of uh, keep the hoses hemmed up, so you don't drag the hoses over something you just painted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, interesting yeah, it was fun. stuff. 
Now, yeah. the metal fab has come into play every day in your work. Uh, you know, I don't think people realize, you know, that it's not just upholstery. Underneath the upholstery is metal. Oh, right. Especially on the older stuff. Right, you gotta, right. You got to build brackets. You got to weld springs, you know, back together or, or seat uh, frames and stuff back together. Yeah, um, and on modern cars, there, there's a lot of frame. The Everything is lighter weight steel, and so it breaks easier after it's got several hundred thousand miles on it it's amazing how well these cars hold up though and it's got to be overall. welded delicately yeah right 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 but we've never had a weld break my welds may not look beautiful but they stay together it looks kind of like a flight of seagulls went over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> <laughs> well same deal here i mean I, I worked on my cars because you had to work on them to keep them running right you know i worked in a parts store a napa store way back when was playing music, you know, on the weekends. They had a garage band and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the the it was the same same vibe. You know, I I I'd, I had to work on my trucks, and uh, I had all Econoline vans for about four or five years because I was the guy hauling the equipment. The ones from the uh, early sixties. Oh yeah, flat nose Econolines. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With the engine sitting right between right you and between your passenger. You. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I remember. When the band got big enough, we decided don't to buy our own truck, so we got a Divco milk truck. Oh, with the with the swivel seat. Right, right, right. I was I was hauling the equipment back from a gig one night, and it was oh, it was cold. It was cold, bitter cold. And I remember going around a big curve, and the pin came out of the seat, and I literally went out the door. <laughs> oh, my. still on the seat, but the door, you know, was that funky accordion door thing. Right. I hit the door, and when I did it, it you know, it opened. And away I went, and I'm still hanging on to the steering wheel and pulled myself back in without, <laughs> without wrecking the truck. But those, you know, that's just what we did back in the day. Oh, yeah. And Good then, times. you know, eventually wound up in the dealership. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for, went from the garage to the, interestingly enough, I went to the insurance business. Really? The garage, the guy that owned the garage lost it <clears throat> for playing on the horses. And, uh, uh, so Bud didn't have a job. So one of our, one of our real good customers was an insurance salesman. And, you know, I was out there talking to people all the time. He said, you can do this. And I said, I don't know anything about insurance, but anyway, it was, you know, it was, you're trying to survive. Right. So we're playing music. My wife and I are playing music on the weekends. I went to insurance prudential school or whatever and sold insurance for a while. And when the economy turned upside down in the, in the eighties, I guess it was, uh, you know, interest rates were in the 20 percent and oh, I, yeah. I remember i was doing a benefit program for a car dealership mm -hmm. and you know i didn't have a prayer of selling this thing to the car dealership because of the interest rates at that point in time but i put together a whole retirement plan and benefits plan and all this stuff and somewhere in the conversation uh i mentioned that you know i used to work at a shop and you know, we really need a mechanic we really need somebody that can help out the service manager you can talk to people blah 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 and so I was right back into cars ah. and never looked back. You know, it's always been cars. From yeah, there. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, um, that's, that's where we are today. We're still, you know, after 20 years of something of teaching and working on cars and being at the racetrack and, you know, dealing with the network of people like you do uh, on a daily basis. Well, it's, a, it's, I've come to the conclusion that whatever you start out in, whether it's transportation or food service or hospitality or, uh, hospital work, health care, that's generally what you stay with. It comes around. Yeah, and, a, and you might you know, 
involve yourself in so many facets of that one individual industry, but that's where I feel the most comfortable is in transportation in any any form, any part of transportation. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, because that's, that's what happens to us. You know, I, I still mess around with music a little bit. I don't do insurance, yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm always working on cars. Oh, yeah. And I have so many people in the racing industry and stuff like that. I, I'm still at the track keeping up with students that, that work for big teams and everything. But when I retired, ironically, the radio station um, that was local here, WDUN, which is the studios that we use, is the WDUN studios out of Gainesville, Georgia. And uh, we, they approached me, one of their producers and a morning show host, said, how would you like to do an automotive show? And I said, what do you mean, you know, an automotive show? And and uh, he said, no, nah, you know, I mean, like, like, remember Click and Clack, the phone-in oh, show yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. kind of it's stuff? so popular. Yeah, well, I, it's just me, but I... I said to him, the click and clack thing is okay. First of all, I don't want to work every Saturday. You mm-hmm. know, and the, the phone-in shows were on a Saturday. So I said, eh, it sounds interesting because I enjoyed teaching and I yeah. could take the topics. And they had an automotive program that was on, but it was a, uh, what do they call it, uh, when it's on all sorts of different stations. Syndicated. Yeah. Okay. It was a syndicated show. And it, it mostly told you about automotive recalls and stuff like that. And it was kind of kind of blah. Uh-huh. And they wanted to base it locally, you know, talk about the local businesses, the local garages, the local guys, have them come in and talk, you know, about what they do and all that kind of thing. So that sounded interesting to me. So I threw my hat in the ring and, you know, a, a million years ago, I was studying radio and television broadcasting. And mm-hmm. that's when I decided to jump into the cars heavily because of what it paid back then. Uh, there was quite a discrepancy between what you could get paid for working at a radio station and working on cars. Okay. And so I went for the car thing. So. Good for you. But, and you know. So, but you decided you didn't want to make it a call-in show like a, hey, bud, my car's making this clicky sound when I'm going backwards at no, about 90 to, miles an hour. No, to, what to, do you think that could be? To me, what happens when you do that on a radio show, mm-hmm. you know, and we still do the radio show, by the way, you know, and it is yeah, still yeah. on WDUN. The... What happens when you do that is you, everybody else that doesn't own that car and doesn't have that problem tunes out mentally or physically. They, right. You know, right. Yeah. If, if somebody calls in and says, I've got a 67 Ford and I need to put a clutch in and you start explaining that, you just lost everybody uh, else. So uh, I, I approached the producer and said, look, I do not want to do that type of thing. I'd rather carry the teaching and the entertaining Right, you right, know, right. and and have it be based on what you and I wanted to talk about on any mm-hmm. given week, and entertain people with that. And if people had questions, since we're in the internet era now, you know, just email it in. Oh yeah, and right. and then we'll talk about it that way. Yeah, and we'll either yeah. make up something or we'll actually yeah. get real answers for you right. uh, from professionals that do this stuff daily. Because the automotive stuff is changing so much, so quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's like buying a computer at the computer store. You get it home and it's outdated. You know your right. your car is the same way. I'm I'm an old knuckle dragger gearhead, and I I lift the hood of of you know like my modern car, and I look at it and I yeah I know what the stuff is, but I don't know where to start. But, you know, I personally feel like these are some of the most exciting times in the automotive industry of my whole life. Oh, yeah. You're going to see transitions going on in transportation. And, in fact, some of the major companies have already said uh, we're not as... You know, we're not as concerned as much with building cars as we are being a transportation source at some point in time. Right. Because I don't know how much longer, 
you know, won't be in our lifetimes, but I don't, I don't know how much longer we're going to continue to have personal vehicles and stuff like that or want to have them or want to sure. own them, you sure. know, necessarily right. can rent one, lease one, whatever. And, um, uh, so yeah, it's exciting times. We got all the electric vehicle stuff going on and we have some guests that'll be on the podcast that are yay and nay on the EV stuff. Uh, we have our own opinions on that, obviously. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's that's what the podcast is going to be all about. Well, and and you know, it's it's exciting to me in the in the aspect of the performance of what's coming down the pike. Oh yeah, you know. But at the same time, you and I are old enough to look back on the automotive malaise of the seventies uh-huh. when when they first started talking about emissions and uh, fuel economy. When a Corvette had 145 horse. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> what that did to the automotive industry. And I think this is a little bit different. This is more like when the automo when the automobile was first invented and we're going from horse and buggy to motorized vehicles, in my opinion. That's how that's how I uh, relate this. Yeah, there are so many different ways to get to that that magic point with a vehicle now, and so many people taking so many different approaches, and a lot of them don't even build cars. Right. They, and they are development companies and stuff like that, and they are they are plugged into these companies. It's not like, it's not like General Motors is making every part on the car anymore. You know, sure. the guidance system might be done by somebody else and adapted to and you know their particular vehicle or to a, a a whole series of vehicles, the satellites and everything else that we, we never had. So yeah, it's, it's very different, very exciting. And, uh, and scary know. at the same time, because as you say, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the manufacturing is, is done through the parts come from vendors. Yeah. And as this changes from, uh, internal combustion to electricity or both, right. Then some of these vendors are going to be, if they don't develop something that works on the new cars, they're going to be out in the cold somewhere. Yeah. And that's kind of a scary thought for them. Well, it's it's like it's like painters and upholsters and fabricators and stuff like that. We've seen it in the racing industry even. You know, it, it, things have changed. Sure. And, and getting people interested in the, the manual trades and stuff. Ain't what it used to be. No, it's very so difficult. It's, it's it, that that's the challenge right now. Everybody wants to play video games. Yeah, is anybody making a seat that you just throw the materials into a, a hopper and it comes out a seat? Well, not quite like that yet. But yeah, no, mm-hmm. you, you still you, it still requires some uh, work. But but they're they're making inroads in CNC cutting and plotting equipment 3d stuff yeah it's very expensive though and once once you go down that road then you're no longer an upholsterer per se you're a supplier of a particular type of upholstery product and you've got to focus on that and push that to pay for the expense of that equipment i mean we're talking about several hundred thousand dollars you know okay but we're not scared we're going to move on with this podcast because that's what we do. That's, That's what we're, and exactly. This is how we have fun. This right. is enjoyment for everybody but the producer, Bill Wilson. He's <laughs> he's back there wondering, oh, no, what are you guys coming up with next? So, Tim, as you know, when I'm not here doing the radio program and I'm not doing chores around the house, which Lord knows we have enough of those between the two of us, uh, I, I occasionally, you know, put muscle cars together. Mm-hmm. And every time I put a muscle car together... One of the the biggest challenges is getting the engine pulleys 
and accessories and everything all mounted on the engine because a lot of times you can't find the original stuff or take, for instance, an air conditioning system or a power steering system. You know, a 50-year-old pump or a 50-year-old compressor isn't worth putting on a car. Right. So you know who I go to to take care of that stuff? I can't wait to hear. Concept One. Okay. Out of game, out of they are out of Cumming, Georgia. Uh huh. Local company, uh, family owned. Two sons and their uh, dad. And they've been doing this stuff for over twenty years, and their pulley systems are phenomenal. And they come with the accessories. Okay. And you can get them in different finishes. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they've got stuff for small block Chevys, big block Chevy, small block Ford, big block Ford, FE Fords, and LS engines. Just your basic street system. Mm-hmm. And then they've got LS engine systems that will support 15 PSI of supercharger pressure. Wow. It's called the 10-rib system. Uh-huh. And it also, you know, these are the guys that are trying to go to uh, on these mile runs and trying to set records and stuff at airports and things like that. Okay. Or just want to have a crazy fast car on the street. Yeah. But these, these systems, I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. I've put uh, I've put four of them on the past couple of years, mm-hmm. all on different cars. The spacers are included, the instructions are included, the accessories are included, the hose fittings are included, and and they have got the hoses and the fittings available. If you're here in Georgia, they can they can show you how to clock them and take them somewhere and get them crimped, or they can crimp them for you. Uh, they have remote reservoirs for your power steering because a lot of times. When you're trying to fit an engine that wasn't originally in a vehicle, right. you've got to get creative. These guys are creative. They design the systems. And they were actually students at Lanier Technical College that we talked about earlier, uh, way back when, and took CNC machining and stuff and got mm-hmm. into the design of it. The finishes are, you can get them polished, you can get them satin, you can get them black anodized or clear anodized, and they, they fit. And, so, they're, and they're beautiful. For a, so no matter what system you're using, aftermarket components like air conditioners, et cetera, that you're putting on an engine, they have a pulley system. No, it will... all comes. It comes with the AC compressor. It comes with the power steering. It comes with the alternator. Oh, my goodness. It's all in a it's package. All there. You don't have to go anywhere and look. And and it's Power Master alternators and, and starters, uh, not starters, alternators, uh, and... Uh, and they use various air conditioning systems, or mm. most of the uh, the small Japanese ones that you see on the uh, on the cars now. Uh-huh. And it's all there in the box. Wow! You don't have to do anything else. Check so that's them. That's a huge time saver. Oh yeah. Oh my. Yeah. And it looks so good. And and you know, I had a situation on the car I'm doing right now, which is a Mach One, mm-hmm. where I wanted to use the the regular fan. I didn't want to use electric fans because yeah. of the I'd had a brand new radiator and all that stuff. And they set it up so I could use the the fan, the stock fan, by machining something off on the on the front of the pulley so it fit right on like the uh, like original. Wow. And I got all the clearances, the measurements are right. Uh-huh. I called them and I said, here's what I got. And they said, not a problem. Get the stuff to us, your pulley and your fan and stuff, and we'll figure it out. So you got the exact same clearance. Wow. That's the, that's the cool thing about it. it. The guys you're talking to are the guys that build the systems. Yeah, that saves weeks and weeks and weeks oh, of, man. of trial chasing and around trying to get and, stuff and oh, get it to my. fit. Bolts are all included, spacers are included, and the structures are included, and they're so simple even I can do it. Oh, that's amazing. Check them out at Concept One Pulley Systems. None better on the planet. Okay.
Decades of determination, devotion, dedication to motorsports broadcasting describes this week's guest in the dictionary. Just look up class act and his picture will be right there next to it. That would be Mr. Bob Varsha. Bob Varsha, welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast. Hey, Bob. Thank you, Bud. Thanks, guys. It's good to be with you again, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I could listen to that all day. I, I mean it from the bottom of my of my heart. And you are also, um, you know, my my first meeting of you after I chased you down in a hotel lobby um, after an F1 race was uh, getting involved with Lanier Technical College. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of you that a, prob- a lot of people would not know from your broadcasting uh, days. But tell us a little bit what drew you to the motorsports program that we were developing at the college. It has been going on for 20 years now and is mm-hmm. going strong. Um, we still have people winning championships with major teams and that. And you were all part of that. Tell us a little bit about your in- involvement. Well, but as you know, I was there largely because of your uh, invitation. But the more I saw of the program and its results, uh, the more interested I became in it, to be quite honest. Uh the kind of young people who want to go into professional motorsports, what kind of backgrounds they have, what their goals and aspirations might be. You know, sometimes we had to talk some people off the off the top of the building because they thought they were all going to immediately uh, be carrying, uh, you know, Richard Petty's racing helmet. Um, but it was it was great. The program was terrific. There was a lot of nuts and bolts stuff there that I had never learned because you know I came to motorsports as a kid out of suburban New York. And I never worked on cars. I never went to motorsports events. I, you know, so I was learning as much as I could. And this was a side of the motorsports business that I knew nothing about is where people acquire skills, where these kids come from and, uh, you know, how difficult it might be for them to achieve their dreams of going to work in pro motorsports. Well, you know, it's been an interesting journey for you for sure. So I'm, I'm going to let Tim mm-hmm. bounce the next one off you here. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your journey from New York State to Atlanta. Well, I grew up, as I said, in the suburbs of New York and uh, went to college up in New England at a place called Dartmouth College. Um, I think I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be amazed at how many people have it. Well, but anyway, um, I went up there uh, a little bit adrift as a young person myself. Uh, a lot of type A personalities in Ivy League schools. Everybody knew they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman or an Indian chief or whatever it might happen to be. And I really didn't have that sort of motivation. Um, This was a different time in our country's history. Vietnam was winding down, but still there. So I looked around and decided that uh, law school was was probably the appropriate place for me. And I didn't want to go out west, didn't want to stay in the northeast. And uh, it basically came down to Vanderbilt versus uh, Emory University in Atlanta for law school. And Atlanta had such a go-go town reputation that I thought, well, that might be the good place to go. So I did, fully expecting that a law career awaited me. And did it? Well, it did for about four years. But then suddenly this TV thing cropped up and it was a lot more fun. And uh, it certainly has been a great ride for me. Well, tell us a little bit about that transition from... uh lawyering to TV announcing. Yeah, were you in the courtroom arguing cases and stuff here? Yep. Mm-hmm. You were? Was Did you enjoy that, litigator. the banter and all that? Well, I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of it. You know, one of the things they do not teach you in law school is what you do when someone comes in the door with a problem. Okay. They, <laughs> I mean, they teach you all about the highfalutin, 
aspects of the law and, you know, what the laws are meant to do and, and how you go about interpreting them and so forth. But, you know, when somebody comes in with a set of facts that you have to find your way through, it, it's just something that, that law schools don't do a good job of preparing people for. So, uh, and having said that, I went to work with a law firm and uh, assisted for a long time before I kind of got my wings. Um, and then my firm disbanded, uh, and I went to work for an insurance company for a while as sort of a house counsel, basically parceling out legal matters to, uh, to outside firms. So another very different side of the, the legal practice from that perspective. So you were one of those guys that, that shows up at the house closing and has 500 sheets you got to fill out? and. Oh, no, no. no. I, oh, you I, weren't I, that guy? Okay. My job was to hire somebody to do that. Oh, so, all right. So did that for a while. But all during that time, I had continued my, my youthful infatuation with distance running, which uh, I thought was going to come to a screeching halt when I graduated from college because, you know, what was there for somebody to do running out in the real world? Uh, but I came to Atlanta not aware that there's this dedicated, uh, large part of the community that was getting invested in running for fitness and fun. and Instead of you. just chasing women, they were running for a, yeah, a, an actual reason. All right, yeah. okay. Well, this was the late 70s, and a guy named Jim Fix had written the first of his two books about running. People were going crazy about it. Everybody wanted to run marathons, and you know, shoe sales and equipment sales were skyrocketing. It was just what everybody was doing. So I fell in with the Atlanta Track Club and eventually became their first paid executive director as the club burgeoned from a from a group of mere enthusiasts up to this, you know, huge, uh, multifaceted, multi-layered community uh, organization. And of course, the centerpiece of the track club is the annual AJC Peachtree Road Race. Uh, so I organized that for a couple of years as part of my duties. And then I transitioned out, and I was going to go back to a full-time practice of law because it was wearing me out trying to do both. Did you ever participate in the race itself? I did. Um, but, gosh, the year, last year I ran was like 1975, and there was, gosh, there must have been 900 or 1,000 people in the race. And I thought, man, that's way too big a crowd for me. I'm not, I don't want no part of that. Of course, now it's about 65,000 people. Um, right, isn't that crazy? And those little Ethiopians always run through all of them. Yeah, yeah. right. And, right. And, <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got the market cornered, you might say. But anyway, so I um, so I got involved in organizing the race, and then in 1979, uh, the folks from Turner Broadcasting came to me and said, "Well, we want to televise the race. That's a, such a big deal now." Uh, there was about twelve or fifteen thousand people in it back then. Uh, and they needed somebody who knew anything about the race because their sports guys at CNN or wherever didn't know anything about running. Uh, somehow, I don't know how, they got my name, asked me to do the broadcast, and I did it with Bob Neal, great Atlanta announcer that all of us folks of a certain age remember fondly. Um, and I thought that was it. We shook hands, walked away, and I thought that was the end of my TV career. But about six weeks later, they called me up and asked me if I wanted a, a part-time job, essentially, doing news and sports uh, at Turner Broadcasting there on Techwood Drive in Atlanta. So I, I switched to that gig, and, uh, and that was basically the start of my TV career. And Now, fortunately, Turner was a non-union shop, so I could do anything. You know, I could ask a cameraman, how do I do this, learn the computer system, all that stuff that in a union shop so I might not have been able to. Uh, so I learned a lot, worked with some great people, gravitated over to CNN Radio and eventually to the CNN and what was called CNN 2 back then. Um, 
we had a terrific sports department with guys like Dan Patrick and and um, uh, Keith Olbermann and Kathleen Sullivan and a whole bunch of guys that went on to fame and fortune uh, with the networks. Uh, so again, I, I learned a whole lot uh, until I was fired, which happens a lot in the TV business. But while I was there, I, uh, I auditioned for a job and got it with an independent production company that had set up shop in the, in the Turner headquarters called World Sports Enterprises. And they were putting together the first news program about motorsports. It was called Motor Week Illustrated with Dave Despain as the main host. Uh, and I was part of a rotation of folks who worked with him. And there I was working with guys like Ken Squire and Chris Economaki, Dave himself, who was a terrific writer, um, and, and just learned so much. Finally, they said, uh, okay, you're going to go full time. Oh, I should point out that I did beat out a guy for the job, Brad Nessler, who is now a big star with wow. CBS doing and, and, you're on, and you're on Bud's Garage Overdrive. Though. Don't right. forget yeah. that. You yeah, know, don't, right. don't let that point He's escape on CBS you. doing this weekend's SEC championship, and I'm here at Bud's Garage. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rub it in. He's got nothing on me. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, that started my motorsports career. I knew nothing. They sent me off to the, to the IMSA Camel GT races, which were very popular and hugely exciting back then. And it was sink or swim time. So I just, you know, went in there with my microphone and cameraman and asked a lot of stupid questions, met a lot of great people. Um, and that led to an introduction to the people from ESPN. And I worked with them for a decade and then on to Speed Vision Outdoor Life and Speed and Fox. And here we are back at Bud's Garage. Yeah, well, see, I can't keep track of any of the networks anymore. Everything used to be on Speed Channel, Speed yeah. Vision. Mm -hmm. Was it Speed Vision first or Speed Channel it first? It was Speed Vision. First. Okay. Mm -hmm. Everything was on there. Yep. Now it's on the Learning Channel and Discovery. And yeah. It's, it's all gone crazy. How... How did you, you know, after you, how did you learn about motorsports broadcasting? I mean, I understand you broadcast and you go to an IMSA race, mm -hmm. but my gosh, you don't know anything about cars for goodness sakes. And, and, nope. you know, and, and you're trying to, I know you can do a broadcast, but how in the world <laughs> did you, who was shouting in your ear about big blocks and what was going on in the cars and, and, you know, all that. Well, you, you know, it's not like you just get stuck on the air and off you go. Right. Yeah. Um, I understand. You, you got know. people, you know. Helping out, people. yeah. But. And you spend the weekend wandering the paddock and meeting folks and asking stupid questions, as I said. Uh, John Bishop and his people at IMSA were terrific. I mean, there really were no stupid questions because, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. They wanted everybody to know about motorsports. Sure. So here comes this kid who's going to be hosting the TV show. Well, let's, let's make sure he's up to speed on what we're doing and why it's exciting and how many people are here and who the great stars are who are driving and building cars and the great brands and the the technologies and all of that. Now, people often ask me, do you feel like you wasted your time in the legal profession? And I say, no, I think going to law school, you learn advocacy. And that's the same thing basically as telling stories. It's, you know, it's looking for a, for a, an event, looking for a narrative and then expressing that narrative. And it, and telling stories is no different than legal advocacy to me. You also learn how to research and the use of vocabulary and that sort of thing. So no, I didn't feel like I wasted my time in the, in the law at all. Um, and I was, I was really hungry to tell stories. So there was a natural energy there in terms of pulling the information together to put together these, these stories. Now, fortunately, when I started out, I was doing what were called video news releases. Right. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. I'd watch the race with my cameraman, tell him what to shoot, 
do interviews, and then after the race, I'd collate about a 90-second to two-minute highlight package, essentially, which would go up on the satellite so that any broadcaster in a local market anywhere that, of course, couldn't afford to send anybody to the race would have a highlight package right there to use if they wanted it. So that was really successful for a while. And then uh, ESPN asked me if I would uh, host their full-length broadcasts, and one thing led to another. I've been very hmm. lucky that way. Who were your favorite broadcasters when you first got started? Wow. Um, probably, in my heart of hearts, my favorite broadcaster would be Jim McKay, who hosted oh, ABC's yeah. oh, Wide yeah. World Wide World Sports. Sports. Yeah, the agony and the... Yeah. 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 Jim, Jim was my favorite guy. In fact, when during law school, when I was doing a, a part-time job waiting tables in a fancy Atlanta restaurant, one night, Jim McKay came in and sat at one of my tables with Dave Marr, the great the great golfer, they were doing the U.S. Open at an Atlanta club of some sort. Uh, so I got him to sign an autograph and yada yada yada. So I would I would have to point to uh, to Jim McKay as being my original favorite. But as I said earlier, I went to work at World Sports. So I was working with Ken Squire, who's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame now as a uh, as a journalist. Uh, Chris Economaki, the Dean of American Motorsports oh, Broadcasters. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody more more wired up during a broadcast <laughs> than Chris Economaki? Nope. God, Chris, love the man. Um, so, and I was around people like that all the time, and everybody shared, and everybody was kind and helpful, and uh, and hopefully I, you know, carried my own weight in terms of contributing to the broadcast, and so I, I had plenty of mentors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did, was there any particular mentor that kind of took you under his wing? Um. Well, not in the sense that I think most people think of that role. I mean, I, I saw a lot of uh, Ken Squire who would help me with, with writing, uh, but Ken lived in Vermont, so he was an occasional visitor to our offices in right, Atlanta. Yeah. Probably Dave Despain, actually. Dave grew up, uh, you know, in, in contrast to my lack of experience in motorsports in the New York suburbs, Dave came from the cornfields of Iowa was absolutely committed to motorcycles, right, and yeah, motorcycle yeah, racing. Yep. He's in the uh, AMA Hall of Fame. Um, and Dave is a fabulous writer, tremendous communicator. So he may be the single individual that I learned most from because I was around him every day and we would work together putting together uh, content for our weekly half hour. And in later years when he started doing uh, Wind Tunnel, mm-hmm. you, would, you would guest on his show. That, that was good yeah. chemistry there. Yeah, that was terrific. That was a whole new element. You know, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, oh man, yeah, that Motor Week Illustrator was a great show. And then you mentioned the way motorsports rights shift from network to network and get moved around. What a great idea Speed Channel was. It was nothing but, you know, that tribal campfire for, Absolutely. for folks who love things that, mm-hmm. that make a lot of noise and go fast. Um and, and, you know, it was just, it, it, I couldn't have been dipped into a, a deeper, better learning experience in terms of getting up to speed on all this stuff. Now, at, while I was at ESPN, I also did a whole bunch of sports that I didn't know diddly about, including figure skating and alpine ski racing. Uh, track and field was, of course, my bread and butter. But I did lots of distance sports, gymnastics, swimming, archery, equestrian. And the challenge there would be to learn what I needed to know to put across an effective broadcast. Now, here's the mea culpa. As the host, what I do from broadcast to broadcast, and this is true of everybody in my line of work, doesn't really change that much from race to race or from event to event. You know, you need to learn, you know, where we are, why it's important, who the stars are, what's at stake, and then in the actual arena, in the competition, 
whether something is good, bad, or indifferent is up to the expert analyst who's sitting next to me, usually, uh, you know, a blue ribbon athlete of some sort who can say, well, that was a triple axle and fell on his butt. Or, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> of course, I could have called that. But, I mean, yeah, the, the little nuances, uh, you know, I leave up to the experts. But every sport I went into, particularly one I had no experience with, was another opportunity to to uh, to to educate myself, to to learn up. And of course, the internet was a huge help in that. You know, previously you'd look for books and magazines and old broadcasts and stuff like that. But with the internet, pow, it was all right there. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna read I was gonna say that you know when you first started, everything was analog. Yep. And there was no internet. Oh, you know, yeah. there, there were magazines, there were newspapers, there was, you know, there was, uh, what do they used to call it when I worked in radio, uh, teletype machines right. and, you know, mm-hmm. Associated Press and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's where you got your information from. The right. rest you kind of had to wing it. Yep. Early in the, I, I said I took a, a job with Turner Broadcasting. I would do the late night news watches, which is basically in the late night movies, they do a commercial break. Yep. And you'd have three or four commercials and then they'd spend half a minute doing news headlines. And that's what I would do sitting all by myself in a studio is rip it from a, a telecopier and tape it together and use that for my script and do, you know, 30 it's seconds called cut of and paste. Now. Cut and paste. Exactly. <laughs> man, that's something that kids nowadays can't even imagine. Oh, can't man. even fathom that if you wanted information about something, you had to go seek it out. You had to dig for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And that in itself was a good education, too, sure. because I learned where the reliable sources were. Uh, so, again, I was fortunate. Mm-hmm. So go back to the Turner days. I have two burning questions here. Sure. Did you hang out with Ted and, and uh, <laughs> Jane? <laughs> no, actually. Um, Ted would wander into the halls of the of the uh, the facility over there in Techwood from time to time, three sheets to the wind, as the saying goes, mm-hmm. um, and bragging about to whoever his guest was about, all this that he had created, which was fun, you know, Captain Outrageous uh, in every sense of the word. Um, yeah, but I did hang out with some cool people, um, Bill Tush, uh, Marilyn Ringo. These were people who were sort of demigods in the Turner universe um, and, and, and had a lot of fun, learned a lot from them. One of the early bosses at Turner was a guy named Bob Wessler, who was a long, long time CBS network president. So he always had stories. I worked for Bill McPhail in the sports department at uh, CNN. Bill from the McPhail family, a huge family in the history of American sports, particularly um, baseball. You know, owned the White Sox for years. Bill um, worked with network television for many, many years, had been to every key sporting event in the world five or ten times over. And he, too, was full of little tips and things. Um and had great people skills. In fact, it was Bill who fired me at CNN and <laughs> made me feel like a million dollars doing it, you know? Oh, that's nice of him. Well, yeah. I mean, he was very grandfatherly approach. He said, look, you can do this. You're going to be terrific. You're just not what we need right now, and changes are coming, so yada, yada, yada. And that's when I walked across the street to actually into the parking lot at Turner where the portables had been set up that World Sports was working out of with Ken Squire and his partner, Fred Reinstein, who was an NBC uh, legend in terms of news and sports, uh, uh, the space shots and the Kennedy assassination and, you know, Vietnam and one thing and another. Um, so I went from one very, uh, talent rich environment to another and, uh, you know, with no gap in between. So I wasn't worried about paying the bills. I just 
went from being a news guy to a motorsports and You know, I, I, I asked you earlier about analog stuff mm-hmm. and going to digital and cut and paste and all that. You mentioned that back in the day, these broadcasters that we all, you know, are, are synonymous with greatness and different events that we've watched, mm-hmm. were very giving and very, very generous with their talents mm-hmm. and helping you out. And, and this is this is further down the line, something I was going to ask you, but you just, you just opened the door. How does it differ from today's getting into broadcasting? I know you're not getting into broadcasting right now, but mm-hmm. you see it all around you. How does it differ from when Bob Varsha started? Well, totally aside from the technology, it's a very, very different industry now. I mean, you don't you just take one look at your television dial. And, you know, when I started out, we still had very few television channels. And very quickly, here came cable television. I mean, that's where I got hired at Turner Broadcasting. And suddenly you had 500 channels, most of which, granted, you never watched. But it created this huge vacuum for content. They needed people to create things. So it was no longer just a journalistic environment where either you were doing a news or sports or weather or something like that, as opposed to entertainment contact con- uh, content. And there was, I'd like to think, a pretty definable line between the integrity of the news business and the fantasy and creativity of the entertainment world. Now that line is blurred and I think we can see it every day, and that uh, that can be disturbing at times. But at least that was the choice you made early on. You were either going to be on the entertainment side or the news side, and that included the managers and and executives all the way to the top. Um, even there, though, there has been so much opportunity in recent years. It's it's really hard to get into uh, the motorsports area in particular. So when people ask, how do you get in? I mean, I basically fell into it. Right. Kids and, ask me, I'm coming through the University of whatever program in film and television. How do I get a job? I have no idea. My job found me. Yeah, um, absolutely. I just went into work one day because there was a chair for me. Um, so I tell them basically, get in wherever you can. You know, start. And racing. I mean, once you get involved with racing, yeah. it's hard to get thrown out. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's just, you know, racing. That's true. Once you're there, you're you're just a slave to it. It's just, uh, you, you mentioned all these cable channels and mm-hmm. stuff like that. How does that get mucked up even further by YouTube and all this other stuff that's on the Internet. Well, there are people losing a lot of sleep at night who are in the cable industry or the television industry generally uh, who are looking over there at online content and the Internet uh, and YouTube and so many specialized channels. I mean, every Tom, Dick, and Harry has his own channel now practically. Uh, and that puts a whole new dynamic on it. And, and, Bud, and Bud and Tim, by the way. Well, yes. Kind of, sort of. But, you know, on the other hand, to look at the silver lining, once again, it opens up all kinds of uh, <clears throat> of opportunities. I mean, there's a young guy that I worked with on the Barrett-Jackson auction named Tyler Hoover. He has his own channel. Uh, he's very clever, does a lot of car, uh, you know, modifications and fix-up and buying and selling and flipping and all that kind of stuff, and has his own YouTube channel on which he, uh, you know, puts up his stuff. We all know about influencers and and how important they are in the industry right now. So there's an opportunity there if you have the resources and the, uh, the ability to, to just dive right in. If you can't find a job in, in the broadcast media, create your own. But if you want to go the more traditional way, you, you definitely want to be on air, uh, you know, go work at your local short track or go start submitting articles 
You're not going to get paid much, if at all. Right, yeah. But at least you get your foot in the door. Do not wait for some TV entity or network to come and offer you a job just because you submitted your resume along with 10,000 other young mm-hmm. people who all have basically the right. same experience that you do. And don't actually hand you a resume anymore. It's they send out Once when we again. would interview kids for the the or students for the uh, motorsports program mm-hmm. well I, you know you and i would ask them when's the last time you went took out a resume oh i just sent out a thousand yesterday eh, it ain't the same <laughs> ain't the right. same yeah so yeah. that go go back to the f1 years uh-huh. where and how was the broadcast done craziest thing i ever saw <laughs> let me tell you i was there one day <laughs> it uh, well, we started very simply. Uh, I started in 1987 at the Austrian Grand Prix with ESPN because our regular broadcast host, Sir Jackie Stewart, uh, who Heard had him, been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, who had been with ABC for long. Jackie was used to the the big network, the ABC, CBS, NBC way of doing things pre Fox. This was. You go in there, money is no object. These were the days of Rune Arledge and all the big network bosses. You know, buy it, build it, invent it, whatever you needed. Uh, so, you know, spending 30 or 40 grand on a uh, room in the, um, uh, the, the, the most expensive hotel in Monaco for a week, not a big deal. We fly in the newspapers on the company jet every day from New York. Yada, yada. Well, when you got to cable... It was a whole nother world entirely, you know, cheap hotels and, and tough travel uh, itineraries and all that kind of stuff. Still great fun. And it was the only world that I ever knew when I got in. Um, but Jackie got tired of it. So he just said, I'm not going to Austria. So I got a call from Terry Lingner, um, who was my boss at ESPN, and said, can you go to Austria this weekend and do the Formula One race? And I said, well, you know never done formula one but sure i can do that i mean i've done the 24 hours of daytona we have 60 cars and three four drivers in a car you know a couple hundred drivers i can handle 26 cars for 90 minutes so i go off to austria and uh presided over the very first formula one race in grand prix history that included not one but two red flags at the start of the race lined up the field sent them on their way they wound up at turn one in a big steaming pile Untangle all of that. Everybody get your backup cars. Let's do it again an hour and a half later. Off you go. Turn one. Another big pile. Okay. Back them up. Start over again. We, we literally were on the air for probably two, two and a half hours before we completed a green flag lap. Wow. So I'm going in there. Not only do I not have a race to call, I'm there. Fortunately, I had Chris Economaki as my analyst, Very which good. was great. Chris was never <laughs> short of words. Uh, and John Bisignano is, was down in the pits for folks who remember John. Um, so it turned out being a great experience. And I actually walked out of the racetrack at the end of the day with Nigel Mansell, who had won the race for Williams. Imagine doing that in contemporary formula. Oh, yeah. Good luck. So, yeah. yeah the we entourage. Out the yeah. yeah he, he went to his helicopter and I went looking for my rental car in the parking lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- that was very cool. The next year they put Chris Economaki and David Hobbs together for the in 1980 eight season. Uh, and then Chris decided he didn't want to travel all over the world as we did in those days. So David and I began in 1989 and went on for the next 20, 25 years together. Um, mostly on site, which I just adored going to the racetrack, going to these cool places around the world, meeting, you know, the, the, the men in the arena, if you will, the athletes, the drivers, 
because uh, I found out very quickly that people give you very different answers to your questions when they're sitting right there with you and they can look you in the eye. Mm-hmm. They know you're here every week. They know you're not, you know, raking the mud trying to find some scandalous episode to, to make your name. So I got to know a lot of these drivers very well and we had a great old time. But then with the passage of time, uh, the, the technology evolved into, well, let's not go to the races. We can take the satellite feeds. And, uh, and at the same time, Formula One television was evolving. It used to be wherever you went in the world to a race, that country's television networks would broadcast the race. The race Everybody yeah, yeah, would right, yeah. pile on to their video feed, which could be problematic in countries like Japan, say, where Fuji TV was going to concentrate on the Japanese driver in that race, no matter how mm. far back in the field he was. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, there's a leader and there's the checkered flag. Um, that changed. Bernie Ecclestone, who was running the series at the time, got tired of that. So he established Formula One television, consistent crew, consistent broadcasts, and everybody signed on for that. So um, we just started staying home and broadcasting uh, from the basement in Bristol, Connecticut, starting around 1992 or three. Uh, and then nowadays, all sorts of events are done that way. I mean, a lot of the Beijing Olympics coming up in 2022 will be done from from home, essentially, from somewhere in the United States, wherever the network is based. My, my indoctrination to it was mm-hmm. being invited to the Speed Vision, Speed Channel right. studios, where you may as well have been in the basement. And you had yeah. we had card tables set up. Yep. And I, you know, I just envisioned this. I do. I don't know what I envisioned, but it, that wasn't what I envisioned. Mission control. Yeah, mission control. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. But you know, you had David Hobbs, yep. Steve Matchett, mm-hmm. and and yourself. Yep. Literally, at a card table, and there were a couple other guys in the room mm-hmm. that were getting feeds. Yep. And information. Everybody had headphones on and earbuds and and whatever. Lots of TV monitors. And you're feeding the stuff back and forth, but it's you know to listen to it. At home on yeah. my couch, mm-hmm. I would have swore you guys were at the track, you know, in the tower, calling the race. It was it was magic. Uh, tell us a little. David Hobbs, which you had already been hanging with for a long time, yeah. he, he said you were a great traveling companion on, on another uh, show that I was listening to. You know, here's a championship driver. Mm-hmm. On the other side of you is a Formula One mechanic. World championship World winning championship. Formula One yeah, mechanic. Right. Yeah. And then there's Bob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us about yeah, what was that? What how did I was carrying the water. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, it's you know, th- those were great days. In fact, when I started with Speed Vision and we did the shows from Stamford, Connecticut, um, we actually had a four man booth, not a three man booth. It was me, Steve Matchett, David Hobbs, and Sam Posey. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But even that, which would normally be a crowd, any more than two guys uh, in a booth can be difficult. Right. Talk and all that kind of stuff. As the three of us sit in this closet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if there's if there's discipline in your approach and everybody knows what their role is. I mean, Steve, as you said, world championship mechanic, David Hobbs with an incredible uh, Hobbisms driving career and his use of language. Yeah. So, you know, David was the uh, was the driver analyst, but also a, a very uh, funny guy, um, which made it very light. Uh, Steve could be very technical. So, the you know, the idea of giving everybody what they needed from a broadcast information, um, entertainment, 
you know, the, 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 the newbies who didn't know anything about any form and the gearheads, you yeah. gotta bring them up to speed. Yeah. Meanwhile, the sophisticated gearheads are thinking, okay, I want to know about tire pressures and track temperatures and right. wind direction and yeah, all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. You had to please all of these uh, audiences, which was a huge and very satisfying challenge. But because I knew what my role was, I wasn't going to say whether what that driver just did was good, better, and different. Uh, the same with, I wasn't going to guess what had broken on the car because I had Steve and I had David there for that. And because everybody knew when it was their turn to speak, if you will, it all worked out, I think, very, very well. Uh, People used to tell us, you know, it was like we were sitting on a couch with them in their home watching the race. And to me, that was the highest praise. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell us about the Barrett-Jackson gig. How did that come about? (laughs) Um, Was that uh, at the same time as F1? Were you doing both at the same time? I can't remember. uh, No, the Barrett-Jackson thing came along later, about 1999 or 2000. Um, it was a, a big property on speed vision, uh, and a colleague of mine, Bill Patrick had been doing it, but, uh, it, it just wasn't up his alley. He had, uh, other dreams. Um, he wanted to do other things in sports, uh, and then got that opportunity. So they needed somebody to slip in there. So, uh, I did. And, um, I think 2000 was my first show and did it for the next 13 or 14 years. Uh, as the company grew and they did more auctions and it became more and more uh, popular uh, on the uh, on the TV screen, Barrett Jackson deserves a lot of credit for that. They really brought collector cars and the the, the huge spectrum of automobilia to the average person. You know, mm-hmm. Before that, you know, auctions were mostly, you know wine and cheese affairs yeah yeah nose in the air and if you're not bidding no you can't come in or if you Uh didn't have a car to sell with barrett jackson it was like come one come all this is a carnival we're gonna have a great time the auctioneers are gonna be entertaining hopefully the tv show is entertaining the cars are magic and you know off we went and and they mix it (coughs) and they mix it between like you say the classic car restorers Mm -hmm. or people that we're not talking about the you know it's not like a south south speed uh you know um auction where they have yeah thank you (laughs) where they they have an rm yeah 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 it's but you know you got a camaro going across the stage that might bring 10 grand for whatever reason okay Mm -hmm. and then right after it is some you know jeff gordon's you know, cup car that he won a championship with right. that's uh, bringing three hundred thousand, four hundred five million dollars right. for charity or yep. something like that, and everybody's hanging out together. Yep. How mm-hmm. how how did they do that? I mean, how you saw it evolve? Mm-hmm. Where did it start? I know we're getting a little off track here, but where did it start, and how did it get to what it is today? Well, yeah, uh, the uh, the Barrett Jackson in particular started out as a simple car show in their hometown of uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Right. Um, the original Barrett, Tom Barrett, and his partner, Russ Jackson, uh, were, were just car guys. They had some nice cars, and they decided they would raise money for local charities by bringing these cars out and charging people a few bucks to get in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I don't know how the actual buying and selling of cars came about in the auction format, but I'm glad it did because things got bigger and bigger and bigger, and um, the the... The founders passed away and their sons took over. And um, I think it was simply because they opened the doors to everybody. It wasn't because there was a big clamor to go to these things. But they saw the success of car shows. So they said, well, why don't we make the auction a car show in its own right? 
for just the reasons you said. You know, here comes the Mercedes RSK or something. It's going to go for $9 million. And then, you know, here comes, you know, something drivable and enjoyable, whether it's a, you know, a muscle car or, a, you know, an import, whatever it might happen to be. Uh, and I've always said to people, I mean, it's a great way to get cheap, dependable, fun transportation is at an auction. I mean, I saw some cars go across the block for 10 grand. And I would just roll my eyes because I'd have bought it in a heartbeat if I could have. Um, but it was a rule that we, you know, we didn't buy them if we were on the air with them. Uh, and, and things just grew from there. And I see, I think we see more and more auctions now that, that have opened their doors more. Some are still very elite and that's fine because everything helps define the market. Sure. Yeah. But, but the Barrett Jackson concept is just spectacular and it's great people watching. You just never know. I mean, there's, there's one guy named Don and that's all I'll call him. He used to show up, buy lots of cars, sell lots of cars. He would come in his farmer's overalls because that's who he was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, uh, uh... <laughs> and we found out that he had all this money to, to spend on cars because he earned it the old fashioned way. He hit the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. So you, you'd see these people. I mean, some folks would look like they didn't have two nickels to rub together and they dropped 200 grand on a car. And now you got guys like Kevin Hart showing up and, and other people shooting the Barrett Jackson broadcast for parts of another broadcast dealing with, you know, with different elements. Of I didn't realize radio. Kevin Hart was actually shorter than me. <laughs> Quite a bit shorter than you. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's bringing, you know, he's bringing that, that world that he's in. Again, yeah. The mm-hmm. comedy and all that. He's the movies. He's bringing yeah, that to this auction. Industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's, there's always something new. And, uh, and that's part of the, the charm of, uh, of Barrett Jackson. What <laughs> was your most interesting event, both positive and negative? Um, I would say the most, uh, the most positive memory I have of a race, um, well, actually two, one was, uh, 2008 when Lewis Hamilton won his first world championship for McLaren, uh, in the last race of the year at Brazil, he and Felipe Massa for Ferrari were in a nip and tuck battle for the championship. Massa took the lead in the race in a day that promised to be wet and dry uh, if, if Massa won the race, Lewis had to finish sixth or better to claim the championship. Rain started to come down. Some of the cars went to uh, rain rubber. Others did not. Down to the closing lap of the race. Massa's out front, comes across, wins the race. Ferrari pits goes nuts. Massa's family goes nuts. Meanwhile, half a lap or more behind, Lewis Hamilton on intermediate tires is shutting down Timo Glock driving for Toyota, who decided to gamble on slick tires. And as the rain got heavier, he got slower and slower and slower. And in the final lap of the final corner, or final corner of the final lap of the final race of the year, Lewis caught Timo Glock for sixth place and seized the championship back from Felipe Massa. So it was this great moment. Fortunately, it dawned on us what was happening as it did, and we cut back and forth, and there's Lewis making the pass, and oh my God, he's going to win the championship, and there's Massa's pit, and they don't know that yet. Oh, now they know. Oh, God. So it was heartbreak and triumph and everything all at once. So that was was fabulous. The other time was um, uh, 1988 at Le Mans. Uh, For several years, Tom Walkinshaw's so-cut Jaguars had been trying to win the race. Um... Failed on a couple of opportunities, at which point they spray painted on the inside of their of their pit stalls, we will be back. 
And finally, in 88, they came. They were up against the might of Porsche, which dominated Le Mans back in those days. Um, Porsche's lead car made a mistake. Klaus Ludwig missed his pit signal. And at Le Mans, with an eight-mile lap, you miss the pit signal. You're not getting all the way around on your reserves. No, no, you're, you're in You're going to come grinding in on the starter. Yep. Um, so Jaguar took the lead and went on and won the race. Now, Le Mans is always thought of as a British race on French soil. You know, the real... The, the bulk of the fans at Le Mans are, are often uh, yeah. the, the Brits. Understood, understood. So as the night was wearing on and then into the final day and things were looking good for Jaguar, the ferries from Calais to, to Dover or Dover to Calais were mobbed with British fans coming over because they were going to witness Jaguar winning at Le Mans for the first time since the 50s. Um, and they all lined up echelon style and they, and they finished and uh, Andy Wallace and... Uh, Jan Lommers and uh, Johnny Dumfries uh, were in the winning car. But what I will never forget, <clears throat> and I was sitting in a little van under the grandstand as we were broadcasting this for ESPN, um, was this thunderous noise from the fans as the Jaguars came across three abreast in the traditional echelon style. And then the flags were waving and the fans were just spontaneously singing God Save the Queen. And, and wow. it was just so emotional. It's as close as I've ever come to choking up on the air. It was so impressive. So those are probably my two favorite uh, race experiences. Um, the worst uh, would have to be um, 1994 when Ayrton Senna was killed in a crash at Imola, Italy in the Formula One race there. That was a, a, a bleak day in so many ways. Um, well, that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the whole race, right? Oh, absolutely. And yet they restarted the race. And people tend to forget it was such a black weekend in so many ways. Um, on Friday in practice, um, young Rubens Barrichello had a huge crash in his Jordan. We weren't sure he was going to make it. Um, then on Saturday, we had qualifying, and Roland Ratzenberger of Austria was killed in a crash. Uh, and both of these events affected Senna, but he decided to go ahead and race anyway. So we... We start the race, Senna crashes and is killed. People get themselves together. They restart the race. And as they do, uh, Pedro Lamy in a Lotus comes up and crashes into the back of J.J. Leto's Benetton. And a wheel assembly goes into the stand and injures a bunch of fans. And later in the race, Michele Alboreto comes into the pits and doesn't get stopped in time and runs over a couple of his mechanics. It was just so bleak in, in so many ways. We just... Everybody just couldn't wait to get out of there at the end of the. Yeah, well, weekend. I mean, as a broadcaster, when you're calling the race, how how do you how do you try to keep a, 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 a I don't know a positive spin? It's tough. It it really is tough. I have to say, but you know, it's funny. We were doing that race. It was uh, Derek Daly was my uh, my analyst, uh, and we were doing it from ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, which turned out to be kind of a good thing because at the track they locked down the press room in terms of information. You know, they didn't want to tell anybody anything until later on. You know, the, the old rule, dark as it is, is that nobody dies at the racetrack. Yeah, right. Okay. Get them to the yeah, hospital. They've, they've, been, they've, been, they've yeah. been transported to the hospital while we'll later. later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Valiant effort to save their lives, but it couldn't happen. Um, but at ESPN, we had the, the benefit of their worldwide resources. And so we were getting information from the hospitals in Bologna and what have you. Uh, so we knew right away, well, Derek Daly, being a racer, knew intuitively that, that you know, Senna wasn't going to make it. 
um, which is another thing about doing a broadcast with veteran racers. They know. They see a race in all of its glory and all of its tragedy very differently than, than the average fan. Even a sophisticated fan, I don't think, sees a race the way a, a racer does, a, a driver, a pit crewman, what have you. Um, so anyway, uh, after that broadcast, which went on forever until we could get the whole thing done with, uh, Chris Fowler, who's now a big star at, at ESPN, came into the studio and said, you know, can I, can I buy you lunch? And so we went to lunch, and he asked me, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you deal with that when somebody is essentially dying right in front of you on the racetrack? And I said, well, you prepare for it. You know, just uh, on a blue sky day, you think, okay, what am I going to say if this happens? There's a couple of basic rules you follow. You never speculate. You, know, mm-hmm. you never say anything that you might regret later. Uh, which frustrates some people, but that really is the way you have to approach these things, I think. Uh, and then you be prepared to to offer perspective, because the first thing a lot of folks, particularly casual fans, are going to ask themselves is, why do this? You know, if your life is at risk, why would you do this? And there's a, there's a lengthy answer to that, I think, um, having to deal with getting the most out of life, which is, um, you know, for some people, it's Driving an automobile at the very limit. That's the way they, they celebrate. Drivers, that's, that's drivers the are different people. They are. They, they're different people that way. I mean, why does a trapeze artist or a high wire walker do what they do? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. this is who I am. Um, so that was that was kind of fun. My Another brush with a guy who went on to become a big TV star. Write his name down, t- uh, Tim. We'll try to we'll try to get him in here. Let, let me let me bounce back to something you just said, though. Mm-hmm. The racers see the race through different eyes than the rest of us. Absolutely. I don't care, you know, what you've been doing that's associated with racing. The racers are different folks. Mm-hmm. A lot of racers now are going into broadcasting, especially on the NASCAR side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and some of them are very good at it. Um, some of them should have stayed in the car or should have <laughs> just gone off in the sunset. But the ones that are very good at it, do they do they bring something to the broadcast for the casual fan and for the announcers? Because you, we still have announcers that are announcing mm-hmm. these races, and they've got a driver sitting next to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is your opinion of of working with a driver, and and who are some of the best drivers you've worked with? And how does it how does it add to the broadcast? Well, you know, it I, I suppose it comes under that elusive um, topic of, of chemistry. You know, whether it's a person you genuinely genuinely like chatting with, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not that you don't like them, but maybe you just have a little trouble communicating the way you'd like to. Um, fortunately, that hasn't happened very often to me. Um, and as I gained knowledge and experience in motorsports, it became easier and easier to. To work with these people if I was in a sport that I you know didn't do often enough to know a great deal about right yeah. it could be a little more difficult in things like gymnastics and skating and and cycling and and what have you um, still fun but just very different experience from being next to someone that you were simpatico with and you almost knew what he was gonna say or you knew how to lead him or her to to the the point that you felt mm. needed to be made on the air um, so it's a, you know, again, it's a, it's a chemistry, it's a feeling out kind of problem. Uh, Hobbs obviously is, uh, you know, my brother from another mother, uh, but I worked with so many great people over the years. I mean, Derek Bell, Derek Daly, who I mentioned. Sure. We had Eddie Cheever in the booth for some Formula One, John Watson. Um, on the NASCAR side, uh, worked with guys like Benny Parsons, uh, Kyle Petty, 
Um, I tell you this, I, I credit Steve Matchett and, and the guy who hired Steve, Frank Wilson, who's one of our vice presidents at, at Fox. Um, we, we needed an extra person because Sam Posey and David Hobbs were going off to Le Mans, and Bernie Ecclestone always scheduled a Formula One race on the same weekend as Le Mans. So sure. We, you know, diminish the other event. <laughs> uh, so we needed another guy to work with me on the Grand Prix of Canada in Montreal. So uh, Frank had read some of Steve Matchett's books that he had written at the time about life as a Formula One mechanic, and he, he kind of rolled the dice, said, let's, let's get this guy in here and give him a shot on TV and see what happens. Uh, so Steve came in and, you know, like the proverbial uh, lost dog, never left. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> and as I said, we all we ha- had our roles. Steve was the mechanic in the booth. Dave was the driver in the booth. I was the host. And then suddenly, and, and this is no discredit to anybody, but other networks started doing the same thing. Sure. They brought in Larry McReynolds, Larry you know, McReynolds, NASCAR, yeah. Petrie, yeah, you know, right, great yeah. crew chiefs who could add that perspective that simply didn't cross anybody's mind, I guess, earlier. Um, and now Steve Letarte on the NBC shows. Uh, I find it a little funny, uh, I must admit, when... When they put those guys on other things like IndyCar and sports cars and stuff, Steve Matchett would never agree to do a sports car, IndyCar race, anything like that. He would say, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, they're just jumping with both feet. (laughs) But these these guys uh, are willing to do it, and, you know, that makes it fun. But uh, it all started with uh, with Steve in the booth at Speed Vision. uh, That gave it a whole new perspective. Um, But, gosh, someday I'm going to write down all the folks I've worked with in all the different sports, um, you know, Jim Kelly and, uh, Joe Theismann in football. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah guys like Daly Thompson, Olympic gold medalist and the decathlon for some events, Dwight stones, uh, Carol Lewis, uh, you know, just so many great athletes and great personalities. Uh, you know, I said earlier, I, I love telling stories and there's, there's nothing like sports to give you great stories. Oh yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you, you've just opened up a, another question I was going to, that I already written down. Great now I don't have to write one. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in all your decades of broadcasting, mm-hmm. your most interesting character. Let's let's talk about. You want to categorize him just most interesting character or most interesting driver or. I would say most interesting character. I think that covers a lot of ground, and I have a ready answer. It's uh, Alex Zanardi. Okay. Is the most interesting man I've I have ever crossed paths with in my life. And for Alex, folks that don't know who Alex is, give us give give us a little back backstory on this. Alex is a uh, an Italian who uh, came up through his you know with it by his bootstraps in in uh, lower formula racing in Italy. Did not come from a wealthy family. Um, his dream was Formula One. Uh, had a nibble with a with a back of the grid team. And then decided he'd try something else with the help of Chip Ganassi, who was famed back in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000s for reaching out to other forms of motorsports. If he saw a kid coming up who was instantly quick, never broke the race car, um, and so he, you know, he introduced us all to guys like uh, Juan Pablo Montoya, right? Um, but particularly to Alex Zanardi. Um, and Alex came in and, and was an instant success as Jimmy Vassar's teammate at Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, then, you know, went back to Formula One with the Williams team when they were yeah, kind of not their their dominating best. Uh, got frustrated with that. Uh, came back to IndyCar and then had a devastating accident in which he lost both of his legs uh, in, uh, in a race in Germany. Um, 
and then remade himself as an athlete rather than going into seclusion and feeling sorry for himself, totally remade his body as a, a hand cyclist. Right, yeah. Paralympic Games and won multiple gold medals as a hand cyclist. Uh, and through it all, and I interviewed him um, as he was becoming a, a, a Paralympic athlete, uh, he just had this incredibly upbeat attitude about life. And he could joke about things. He used to take his prosthetic leg. He said, it's great. I can be as tall as I want, depending on the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or he will sit and, and cross his knees, and he would take one of his, his prosthetic legs and turn it all the way vertical. So he's looking at the bottom of his prosthetic foot, and he said, that's a good place for me to put my wine glass. <laughs> oh, this okay. is just his life. We went down to his boat in Monaco. <clears throat> he had a, a nice uh, multi-level uh, a yacht, really. Uh, and he would just take off his prosthesis and and move around on his hips and his uh, hands, almost you know like a like a chimpanzee. Uh, but he was a rocket. I mean, he'd go up and down stairs and climb ladders and all, all right. these things. And he built this big upper body that that allowed him to be such a terrific hand cyclist. Um, and then he, unfortunately, a, a year or so ago, he had this terrible accident uh, during a promotional event on a on a, a highway or a road in Italy and had a horrifying collision with a truck and has been in hospital pretty much ever since while they try to reconstruct him. Um, and we're all pulling for him and it, and he will live, but what kind of life he's going to have, I don't know, but I do know this, Alex will make the best of it because that's just the kind of guy he is. He wrote a book called my sweetest victory. And that was about his return from this devastating accident where he lost his legs, uh, in an Indy car, uh, just an amazing guy. I've had chats with uh, with guys like Mario Andretti about him. Everybody's just in awe of, of Alex. Is there a question that we haven't asked you? Because I had a list for sure, and we've known each other for a long time now. Is, yeah. is there anything that, that surprises you about the sport or anything that, that we haven't asked you that that you might want people to know about you or know about sports broadcasting or about these characters that are in the sport, uh, that type of thing? Well, you know, it's a, every day is a new day. Uh, and it's no secret that I'm being treated for prostate cancer. And that took me off the, off the television screen for, you know, for essentially two years now. Right. Um, and that has been tough to get back to. I'm sure it's a case of out of sight, out of mind, but, um, I'd like to work. I, I really don't have any hobbies, I should say. I don't play golf. I don't know boat. Um, so I, I, I just love working. I love doing what I've done for the last four decades, you know, going someplace and, and learning about an event and, and presenting it. Um, so I'm finding that tough to get back to right now, uh, and I hope I'm going to be able to. Um, we don't know what the future holds. Uh, but I do get asked a lot, you know, when are we going to see you again? Uh, and I do you know, a little spot work here and there, but uh, it's been tough for one of the reasons that you talked about earlier. Suddenly, all the motorsports moves from place to place. Right. You know, back in the days at Speed, uh, we had we had a great time, and then Fox had a lot of it. Now, a lot of motorsports are on NBC, and they have contracted announcers that do their stuff. Um, and the the downside of that is, you know, there's really nowhere else to go because all the big stuff, whether it's MotoGP or Supercross or um, well, Formula One is, is elsewhere now on ESPN, but that's a different situation. Um, good to see that Formula One is getting more popular by leaps and bounds here in the States. So we may see some network competition for Formula One in the near future, which 
would be good, I think, for the sport and maybe open up an opportunity for a guy like me who spent so many years with it and know so many of the people involved that, you know, maybe they'd like to have me back. When, when you think back to, you know, hanging out with uh, Alex Zanardi, mm-hmm. is, there, is there some inspiration you can draw from his situation and bring it to your situation? Oh, that, well, certainly. Because uh, he certainly he certainly changed what he was doing. Yes, he did. Um, the thing I would take from Alex's life uh, is his, his endless optimism. Now, granted, you know, he was, uh, he, he made a wonderful income for himself and his, uh, and his family. Uh, and that kind of financial security is, is a good thing. I aspire to it someday. Have uh, you tried the lottery? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, more often than you know. Uh, yeah, but, uh, I would, if there was one thing I would wish for, it would be to, to get back into the swing of things and, uh, and have something like that. I, mean, I don't even care if anybody watches. Don't tell anybody that. But <laughs> I just, I just want to be there to do it. I, mean, I want to be around racing people. I want that, that energy and that intensity that, that you only find in racing. I used to say, you know, back when the, the, the atrocities of 9-11 unfolded and suddenly we needed to have impermeable doors on every commercial aircraft. Yeah, and it was yeah. going to cost $30,000 a door and it was going to take four years. And all I said, get a racing organization involved. You know, they're used to coming up with things that have to work like this and they have to be ready yesterday mm-hmm. and so on. And I right. said, you know, a good racing team or a collection of teams are going to start banging those things out and, you know, we'll have doors on, on airliners in a month. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and lo and behold, some racing manufacturers actually made, uh, you know, bulkheads and stuff for sure. Jets and things like that. You know, you bring up an interesting question. I'm going to bounce you into a, you know, another world that, 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 that you maybe, 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 you know, haven't participated as much in, but you're around NASCAR. You're around mm-hmm. NASCAR people. Uh, I've got to ask you, what do you think of this new generation of car that they're coming out that, that to me, closely resembles IROC, uh, kind of, <laughs> sort of? Uh, your thoughts on that and, and its effect on not only NASCAR nation, but NASCAR well, it, workers. It, yeah. NASCAR is going through a real evolution right now. And I think that nothing represents that more vividly than this new generation of car with carbon fiber body work. And, uh, you know, and as you say, you know, spec machinery in so many ways, it's a tough situation, you know, and I have a lot of, uh, respect for motorsports organizations that can handle the competing interests of innovative technology that, that fans can really sink their teeth into and differentiate the cars using, um, and the need to make it cost effective so that you have plenty of teams and a healthy field of cars and so forth. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, NASCAR has chosen to go a certain direction, not only with the cars, but with the kinds of races they're going to run. Oh yeah. They're going to the LA Coliseum. They're going to run dirt in Bristol. They're going to, you know, do more road they're gonna courses. Be, uh, they're going to be running uh, <clears throat> against the Australian supercars before it's all those, the, the V8 supercars. That, that would be that's, fun. That's going to happen. I did one V8 supercar race at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas years ago. Um, it fell through, I think ma- mainly for reasons of finance, but it was fascinating. And the drivers took one look at that track and they used a shortened version of the track. And the drivers were like, no, 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 no. Come on, let's open this baby up. We can see this track. We want to run the full thing. Um, and maybe they will someday because those are spectacular cars. Yeah, they're, they're fairly common in their way. I mean, you only have two manufacturers, um, 
So from one to the next, they're kind of indistinguishable. But they are colorful, and the drivers are colorful, and they don't mind mixing it up. It's really entertaining. Um, so, yeah, watching them do a race against NASCAR yeah. machinery would be fun. And I'm sure a lot of the NASCAR guys would be up for it, too. Now, I have pitched this to some NASCAR people, and they've pitched it right back. <laughs> At a higher speed. I yeah. <laughs> it has occurred to me, as mm-hmm. I've been to Petit Le Mans for the past 23 years, with and without students, and, you know, as a spectator, and mm-hmm. as a, you know, whatever. Why can't, if they can have the... Daytona prototypes and the GT cars and cars that look like they came off the street Mm -hmm. still, Porsches, things like that, Vipers, whatever. If they're all racing on a track at the same time and NASCAR owns IMSA, Mm -hmm. why can't we have the trucks, the Xfinity cars and the cup cars run a race that's exactly like Petit Le Mans, all of them on the track at the same time? Have I lost my mind? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You mean we put the GT3 machinery together with... NASCAR machinery? No, no, no. Put the NASCAR divisions well, that they have. Let them all run among themselves. Let them run among themselves, run yeah. their own races. Yeah. You know, where you've got different speed cars, different types of vehicles. Sure. Uh, IMSA's doing it. Yeah. Why, why couldn't NASCAR do it? Yeah, I, I would, just think that would appeal to a bunch of folks. Yeah. Well, NASCAR kind of staked its claim to the Stepping Stone series, which is totally legitimate. You go through trucks, and then you go up to right. yeah. Xfinity, and then you go up to cup cars, who are more power, which are more powerful. Um so they would have to give in that, that section of the rule book and come up with a balance of performance or BOP that would allow all the cars to run at essentially the same horsepower to weight ratio so that it would be a competitive event. I mean, otherwise, the, you know, the cup cars were likely to just draw away. Yeah, but the cup cars <clears throat> would have to work their way around the slower Xfinity cars and the slower trucks and the different aerodynamics and all that. I just think it it would be more like the uh, the Corvette running against uh, all the other cars that it runs at mm-hmm. you know at at, at, at an IMSA, at an IMSA race. race yeah and you know the, the Daytona or the prototype drivers mm-hmm. have to know that that car in front of them is thirty miles an hour slower yeah or well, thirty point. miles an hour faster yeah <clears throat> that that that's an interesting idea um, you send that down to Daytona Beach and tell me what they tell you. Uh, <laughs> I've tried. Well, you know, they're taking a progressive attitude. I have to give them that. You know, NASCAR is kind of shaking off the old. Um, well, we're not, we, we can't, we can't uh, you know, keep the entertainment going in circles for, you know. Well, that's true. A long enough time or too long a time yep. that, you know, everything else just, you know. Yeah. I just, I, I can watch the highlights anymore. Yeah. So. Well, well but, I mean, but at what point? Uh, is internal combustion going to become oh. obsolete in racing? Well, this is a great question. Um, you know, I- I- every motorsport in its way, for reasons that you just identified, um, Bud, uh, have to decide who they are. You know, do we want to be cutting-edge technology for road cars? Right. Which, you know, the manufacturers want, and the manufacturers provide the money that makes the wheels go round. But, the fans have been crying out for a long time. They want race cars to be loud and mm-hmm. powerful and difficult. I mean, you can't put a race. The, the joke was, uh, using IMSA for an example, was they would put a, a Corvette you know, Z06 pace car out there. Right. And behind it would be the Corvette you know, C7R race cars. And the streetcar has it's a couple faster. hundred yeah. horsepower <laughs> yeah. more than the race car. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> you know, um, I realize why they do that is to create competition and invite more 
manufacturers and brands to get involved. But, uh, you know, Formula One fans want those screaming 12 and 10 and 8-cylinder engines. And then maybe they don't care about hybrid technology, even though the technology is fabulous. I mean, uh, they're, they're setting track records everywhere using a third less fossil fuels than they did in the past. So Formula One is, is kind of taking a different approach now, and they're trying to invent synthetic, sustainable uh, fuels that would not involve petroleum. And then maybe you can go back to the, you know, the, 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 the kind of engine note that makes the fans cover their ears, but they love it. Um, yeah. Uh, or do you want to be, uh, you know, big fields, you want to be affordable for every different kind of race team that wants to come and join in. Yeah, what do you want to be? What kind of show do you want to put right. on? I tell you, the the last year I've done some work with the SRO series, the old Pirelli World Challenge, yep, which yep, is yep. now called, um, I don't know, some sponsored GT Americas, GT Asia, GT Europe. Uh, the GT3 platform, I think, is really exciting. Allows a lot of manufacturers. The cars are very high tech, oh, yeah. very cool, yep. <clears throat> uh, and put on a great show. I most recently did the eight hours at Indianapolis back in uh, in September, um, and that formula, if you will, is growing worldwide. Uh, IMSA has signed on to it. The ACO, the Automobile Club of the West that runs Le Mans, uh, has signed on to it. So we're we're going to see a generation of GT competition now coming up that I think is going to be pretty cool. Simultaneously, they're trying to provide the the super high tech Le Mans hybrids hypercars yeah right that, that's coming to my amazement has drawn the attention of at least five or six manufacturers i didn't think they'd get that many but you know so maybe we'll have the wild and wacky prototypes at one end and then a, <laughs> a, a fleet of gt cars at the other end that look like corvettes and bmws and ferraris and what have you hmm. well but i mean at some point you know as as technology evolves in cars mm-hmm. and younger generations who are growing up with them see the improved performance mm-hmm. of electric vehicles, is that going to just make the internal combustion racing just for us old guys? When they start <laughs> losing right. viewership yeah. is what I'm talking about for yeah. the networks and and cable operations right. when when they start losing viewership because th- the people that are watching most don't want to watch that yeah it's that's a great question and a great conundrum for the industry um you know electrification is the future there's no question about it um but you might also look at uh, the technology that's in streetcars right now i mean the average teenager can't work on a on a new car right. i mean he can't touch right. it so, you know, he has to he has to get something older if he wants to, you know, change the plugs or, or put go fast parts on the car or whatever. Um, so we we don't want to put those potential fans on an island by going to a technology that they, they that just they cannot don't come even, to grips with. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Internal combustion combustion has never been so marvelous as yep. it is now. Yep, And I don't think it's going away, to be quite honest. Um you know, these synthetic non-fossil fuel blends uh, would probably be a good thing if it provides the energy we need to get exciting racing. Uh, you know, the market's going to speak with its yeah, wallet. You know, right. it, it, people are going to buy tickets to go see racing, and if they don't like what they see, then they're going to stop doing it. I will say this. Uh, over Thanksgiving, I was up in Baltimore with my daughter and son-in-law. They just bought a uh, hybrid, uh, plug-in hybrid Toyota RAV4. Mm-hmm. And my son-in-law is an engineer. 
So he is absolutely meticulous about data. Uh, we pulled in before we drove to the Jersey Shore to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. We pulled into a gas station, and he was busy writing in his notepad, and he said, there it is, 100 miles per gallon I got wow. with my rav Now, he lives in a big city, so he does everything all day yeah, on, sure. on the battery. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, he got 100 miles per gallon on this, this tank of fuel in this car. And I thought, wow, well, that's pretty us, special. You know, Tim owns one. I own one, uh, uh, you know, an, a non-plug-in hybrid. Yeah. You know, it's, mid-50s. It's, it's amazing. Right. Yeah, right. Mid-50s, no problem. It's incredible. And just regular everyday driving. Yep. And it, it, without sacrificing performance, oh, really, yeah, from right. other vehicles its size. Yeah, yeah. You, you step on the quiet pedal in an yeah. electric car and you're going. Yeah. So, Bob, what's your newest broadcast endeavor? Uh, right now, um, I'm doing the Extreme E All-Electric. There um, you go. Off-road <laughs> championship. We have one more event this year coming up from England uh, on the weekend of the 1819 uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Dorset in England which has been a lot of fun. It's an interesting series. I've watched some of it on, on uh, you know, on computer. On Fox, yeah, yeah. or on computer. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is fascinating. I, I wish people would uh, give it a try. Uh, these cars are the equivalent of 550 horsepower, uh, very difficult terrain. And so there's a lot of bouncing around that goes on. I think in their heart of hearts, the series would say, well, we need to, we need to fix these cars a little bit. They have too little suspension travel at the back so when you hit a depression and you get to the bump stops uh, all that energy gets transferred into the chassis of the car and suddenly the back end of this thing goes flying through the air it's pretty spectacular stuff great driver lineup nine-time world rally champion sebastian loeb uh two-time world champ um carlos Sainz senior um one man and one woman driver on each team and some of these girls are amazing um Katie Munnings, who was a, a British driver uh, at the first event in Saudi Arabia, was in the middle of her uh, lap of about seven miles, and uh, she lost a tire. One of her rear tires went down. She never lifted. I mean, she was humming across this desert and then down this road on three wheels, fighting the car the whole way, and all the guys were in the pits like, whoa, wow. what is yeah. this woman doing? So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a uh, it's a good series, and uh, we await next year's uh, schedule, and hopefully I'll be working on that then. Um, I hope to be back with the SRO people doing some GT3 stuff. Um, I've looked at a few other opportunities and put some feelers out there. I'd love to go back and do the auctions again, but, you know, right now, as I said, I was kind of out of the picture for a while, and people have teams that they're happy with, which is understandable, and it, I hate the idea of spinning every, any other colleague out of a gig, but... Uh, Got to get my toe back in the water somewhere. The call is going to come. The call is <laughs> going to so. come. And uh, so. we we are just uh, just so glad that you took the time today to be with us. My pleasure. And and share these stories. Mm -hmm. And you are welcome back every week until something really comes up. To <laughs> <laughs> you get a real job. At <laughs> the same exorbitant job. rate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that you've mentioned all these famous people that have gone on and we haven't had them yet. Well, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's be, hope for you. There is hope that'll for be you. That'll the title of my memoirs. Yeah. I once worked with. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, Bob Varsha, thanks for taking the time to be on the premiere episode of uh, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Uh, hope to have you on the radio show again sometime. Just uh, sure. talking racing and whatever your next endeavor is, it'll be fabulous. You can take our word for it. Thanks, Bud. All right. Mm -hmm. 
All right, you know what the music means, Tim? It's reaction it time, It is bud. reaction time. <laughs> and uh, so what do we learn from Bob Varsha? I, I think one of the things that I, I gleaned from the interview with him is that like the racing industry itself, the the broadcasting industry has changed tremendously. Oh, yeah. I mean, from the time we had, you know, analog television to what we got now. And I guess it's all, is it all analog or digital or what is it, Bill? What's the... Well, they're all required to have a digital signal as well. Okay. That's why you have these uh, digital antennas. But when Bob started, it was analog, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Mm, So it's, you know, it's gone to that. And, uh, you know, we've got a million channels. Right. And uh, it's not like the wide world of sports was the only place you can find it. You can find stuff everywhere. And and the, I think that the newer broadcasting stuff, except for a few of the people like... um, I'm thinking of uh, Dale Jr. and uh, I'll think of the other broadcaster's name that works with him sometimes. But they they remember the history because they were part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think the history is being lost, not only in, in uh, motorsports broadcasting, but in a lot of sports. The the people that came before that paved the way get, get kind of lost. Yeah. So, Jeff Burton, that's the other broadcaster I was thinking about, NASCAR mm-hmm. driver. So... Uh, you know, I, I think that's that's coming to the forefront. And what Bob says about, you know, you can be on YouTube, you can be on this, you can be on that. And, um, you know, th- there's just so many choices out there for people now. I know. So you're always wondering with what you're looking at, am I missing someone else's feed that might have been better? So you keep finding yourself, I do anyways, switching channels and not getting the full benefit when when it used to be wide world of sports because we only had two channels you were focused on that and it was good programming yeah absolutely for its time yeah the, i i think as you expand the programming you can you can kind of thin the herd water water down the recipe if you mm-hmm. will and uh people just seem to come and go now where you know bob's been at it for four decades right Long and time. uh so it's it's just interesting to hear the stories and how he got to know the people and the pioneers in oh, the business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that we can bring that to all the rest of our podcasts because all of these folks that are going to be on the podcast have great stories to tell mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I know some of it's a bygone era and some of it is a modern era. The the guests are going to be in here. So we'll have we'll have a lot of things to draw from. Sure. As far as, you know, where where it was, where it's going. And uh, I know Kyle Petty mentioned in, in the podcast we did with him that, you know, he's excited about the future. Oh, yeah. He, he thinks, you know, if they bring electric cars to the forefront or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. And I, th- I think that's a good attitude to have. What's well, the only attitude you can have if you want to survive, you know? Okay. That's advice for living. Yes. <laughs> you know that I tinker with cars all the time. Mm-hmm. All right. And we were talking in the earlier in the podcast about uh, concept one, right? And we were talking about linear technical college, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the the you know the people that are behind the scenes. If you're a classic muscle car restoration guy, there is a company here in Georgia that has been behind the scenes for a long time, and they are year one. Year one. The muscle car experts in Cornelia, Georgia. Yeah, they're in Cornelia now. They've moved from Brazelton. They have not had their grand opening yet. And when they do, we'll give you a report of what the the new uh, digs are like. But it's 
and they've and they're such good folks and they keep in touch with you you know when they've got a part that hasn't come in uh parts are getting much better since the pandemic as far as receiving them uh, right. and they've got a, an email blast that goes out every week that we're we're part of now thank goodness and uh you know they've joined the podcast and and we want to keep the hobby going and they are the people that keep the hobby going with the classic car restoration stuff not only the the parts you can buy, you can actually buy assembly manuals and stuff. And those things I have found to be priceless. Oh, yeah. I take pictures. I put stuff in baggies. But, you know, six months later, you go back and you right. look at it and you think, oh, what, the, gosh, what the heck was Where, the, was where it? did that go? How uh, did that go? Yeah. So what you do is you go to yearone.com and you get the catalog that pertains to your car. Mm-hmm. I, I always suggest you get the catalog, even if you you're you know want to go online and order your parts and all that kind of stuff. Get the catalog because you can sit and relax and flip through the pages and and put I put paper clips on them or dog ear or whatever and you always see something that's easy to miss on the computer sometimes exactly it's so, much simpler to and, look at the catalog. and if you need additional information you have an actual person on the phone that you can talk to you don't have to do the you can chat but you don't have to right okay and I'm I'm not a chatty kind of guy I want to talk to someone say how you doing <laughs> you know. Is it snowing where you are? <laughs> yeah, right. What's your weather like today? And if you're at year1.com ordering parts, just punch in the secret code BUD20, and that'll get you 20% off your order on all discountable items. Check them out at year1.com. Okay, we were a little long on this first podcast. We'll keep the other ones, all the remaining ones, a little bit shorter. So, you know, you can tune in and, and stay with us through the whole thing. Special thanks to all our partners. That would be Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts, and uh, Jacobs Media. And to Bill Wilson, our producer extraordinaire and part-time referee for uh, getting us through all of this and all the future ones. Check out Bud's Grodd's radio show on all the usual podcast platforms or the Access WDUN phone app or live stream it at WDUN AM 550 or FM 102.9. Now, episode two, Tim, is going to feature the guy that got this whole thing started for us. Really? Yeah. Automotive news and views from you and me. And our feature guest will be a surprise automotive photojournalist whose photos and articles have been in just about every car magazine you've ever read. Wow. Wow. How exciting is that? All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery on Bud's Garage Overdrive, the podcast. Until then, keep between the ditches, shiny side up, and have a great week.